Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to February of 2019. I'm Nicole DeBoom, host of the Run This World with Nicole DeBoom podcast. Some people tell me I put on my podcast voice sometime. It's kind of cool. Um, I have to say that the podcast is off to an incredible start this year. We had beginning of the year self-defense master Melanie Murphy, then the anti-diet guru Heather Kaplan, and finally our amazing real-life models who sat around in the basement of our photographer Bobby Turner. And if you watched on the YouTube video, you can see it in action. There's like a seven-minute clip on uh, episode 119, I think. And we talked about all things body in the Body Talk episode. (laughs) So uh, today we continue this awesome podcast momentum with the incredible Adelaide Purr. That's P-E-R-R. She's a a boulder, a triathlete, amazing, truly one-of-a-kind woman who apparently I met many years ago, and I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember it. Um, You'll hear more about that in the interview. But I came to know about Adelaide as a woman who in 2014 suffered serious trauma due to a crash with a car while she was on her bike. Um, I was also referred to her by former podcast guests, um, Betsy Hartley and Tracy Hulick. They all run in the same circle. But um, not only did Adelaide live to tell about this crash, but she has truly thrived Uh, We hit on more than the crash that changed her life. We talk about the emotional trauma that was made even more complicated by bipolar disorder. And it affects not only the victim, but everyone else in her life. So as you can imagine. So, you know, the other cool thing about Adelaide is that she also became a pro athlete after the crash, which almost took her life, which means she had to figure out not only how to get back on the bike, but how to race on a bike at a high level. So there's a lot that goes into this one. Uh, before we get started, though, I want to say a huge thank you to you for supporting me and this amazing podcast um, coming up on the three-year anniversary of the pod. And it's literally like having another child, I think. And I love it. Um, Time is sort of flying by. I was looking back on the people I've interviewed recently, and I'm just blown away that people have trusted me enough to share stories and experiences that are closest to their hearts and often really difficult. And that just makes me feel special. So thank you. Um, So many of my guests I now call friends because of this shared experience. So if we go a step further, one thing I hope with this podcast is that you also feel more connected to, to me, to my guests, to each other, that you trust me, that you can even reach out to me. And I don't always get back in a really timely manner, but I read your emails and your posts. So thank you so, so much. Um, If you love this podcast, please head over to iTunes and review it. It really does help. Um, I keep forgetting to ask you guys to do that, but it really is a cool thing. And it, it also makes me, really helps me know that you're listening and you care. So Um, And I have to pause for a minute now, because now it's time to roll into the sponsor stuff. I do have an awesome sponsor, and its name is Skirt Sports. And I have to give it some serious love, because I talked about the pod being like a kid. Well, Skirt Sports is another kid that I have, and she's now 14, almost 15 years old. (laughs) And you know I started this company because I wanted something that didn't exist at the time. I wanted to, like, have it all you know, performance, comfort, and cuteness. 
I just didn't understand why no one had done it yet. So when I dreamed up my first product, it was a running skirt, which had never been done before. I got a prototype made and I wore it in the 2004 Ironman Wisconsin and I won the freaking race. And it was on the race course that I transitioned from one chapter of my life to the next, like from one passion to the next. Isn't that cool? It was literal. It was like a total trade right there. Boom. Triathlete to entrepreneur. Um, My love and passion for helping women find happiness in their bodies is still going strong after all these years. If you wear skirt sports, you can literally feel it in every everything we do. Every seam is thought through. Every fabric selection, every feature, and yes, every one of the 5 million pockets that we basically sell every year. So get over to skirtsports.com or if you're local, come to our Boulder store and take advantage of the 20% discount I'm giving you because you listen to my podcast. Use the code RUN20 at checkout. We are currently launching new styles, prints, colors, and more basically almost every day through April. Uh, Big notables this year are a new collection made for women who wear sizes 1X to 3X, and it has already launched and is crushing, and a uh, killer swim, skirt swim, coming soon, Uh, skirt swim collection for active water play. It's landing in, gosh, a couple of weeks here in February. All right. All right, everyone. Enough of that. Um, Now you know what to do to support me. Now it's time to bring on our next guest, Adelaide Purr, and support her. Okay, so Adelaide is here, making the trek down from North Boulder to South Boulder. Yeah. This treacherous, blizzardy day that's already sunny and probably melting. So um, I was just informed that we met before. (laughs) I'm so sorry. You don't have to apologize. My brain turned to goo after I had a kid, and I don't remember anything from before then. No, this is probably... Almost 10 years ago now. Oh, good. Then it's so, legit that I might not remember. It's completely legit. Okay, so what would... What you were in you South t- Carolina. Oh, this is totally out of context <laughs> then. <laughs> and my sister and I were getting ready to do a bike tour, and we were trying to raise money for a... I don't even know what the company... It was It was a nonprofit around books. And that's as much as I remember. Books, but we like were reading. Yeah, like, like reading. Okay. Yeah, I know. And we, it's but very we, meaningful. but I looked up to you. I knew about skirt sports. It was early <laughs> on when you were starting the business, and I we wanted to talk to you in some capacity about like business proposals and how to get something off the ground, kind of. And and I just when I moved to Boulder shortly after our bike trip got cut kind of short we did not do as far as we intended to do <laughs> those but, books but, we didn't raise as, many, yeah, yeah, as much for the books it was really it was like colder in atlanta that year than it was in alaska <laughs> in the winter so we our our trip only made it like we made it to baton rouge anyway but before that <laughs> we we sat down with you somewhere in charleston where i was living at the time and my sister and we talked with you. You were nice enough to answer an email and, and sit down with me. That is literally all I remember about it. But I mean, Boulder was appealed to me because I knew you were starting here. Justin's Nut Butter was starting here. There were all these startups at that time because I moved here nine years ago, shortly after this bike trip. And uh, I liked the idea that people were out doors exercising and when you exercise your brain starts to spin and you come up with all these ideas and then you gain some confidence and then you turn around and you do something good with life and um so you know your your company amongst a few other small ones and just the ideas that were being created in boulder is kind of how i ended up here in part you know but we did meet this is a very hilarious story because like it, I should remember sitting down with you and your sister. Maybe it was like around one of our skirt chaser races or something. It might have been. Because I was sort of like running around the country doing all this crazy stuff. And we had some races in the, uh, you know, Southeast area. Yeah. Um, so you got a little like entrepreneur in you too, don't you? Uh, 
Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're, we were meeting about like, how do you get things up and running and what's going on in Boulder? This is like, it's mm-hmm. like you had both business and sports on the brain. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I, I have. I've, <laughs> I've dabbled. I've dabbled here and there. And uh, it's a tough world. I admire you because you just have to be on the game all the time. Now it's social media and oh gosh, all of that. Yeah. Ex- <laughs> I feel like extraneous stuff, but it's not extraneous anymore. No, so it's not. It's yeah. I think that's a big challenge. Well, I admire you too. And the world does move very fast. I mean, when I was racing and in the shoes you're in right now as a professional triathlete, it was a very different world. We didn't have social media. Yeah. None of that pressure existed. When I started a business, it was a very different world, you know. But that's the one thing we can expect out there, right? Things mm-hmm. are going to change in our lives. That's true. Yeah. So, you know, we're sitting here to talk about all kinds of stuff, but maybe we should actually lead in with one of the big things in your life that happened (laughs) that created a lot of change for you. And I'm referring to the big accident, which occurred how long ago now? Uh, It was in 2014. So it was about a little under four and a half years ago. Oh my gosh. So were you, you weren't a pro triathlete before this accident? No, mm -mm. I was coming off of uh, my first year of cycling and I had done a few triathlons maybe two or three years beforehand, but I'd done them on my touring bike <laughs> that I'd ridden with my sister. So uh, Kenneth, awesome. was, who was my boyfriend at the time, was into cycling and he bought me my first road bike in 2014. I My entrepreneurial spirit, I put on a bike race up in Carter Lake. I got into bike racing and then August came around and I decided wow, I'm probably a lot better on the bike than I was when I was riding a surly touring bike. And so I thought I'd give it a go trying another triathlon. So when I was hit, I was training for hits, a hits like Havasu race, which was going to be okay. in November of that year. And it was October 18th, the day that I got hit. So it was my last big ride. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, let, let's backtrack for a sec. Uh-huh. Well, we have a lot of time to get into this big kind of uh, traumatic event, but um, you had obviously made your way to Boulder. Yes. Okay. So when did that occur? Because you're not from here. You're from Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. I grew up in Pennsylvania and I moved here in 2010. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what brought you out here? The boy? No, I just came out here. You? No. Yes. I just came out. I liked the spirit of Boulder. At the time, I liked the mix of people being very creative, and I liked outdoors, and I had spent some time in Colorado Springs previously, so I knew I liked the mountains, and I told my sister we're going out to Colorado, so that was that. Uh, That was that. So you make decisions. When you make decisions, you just do them. Are you, have you always been that way? Yeah. Yeah. It's like no kind of pondering, should I, shouldn't I, blah, 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 blah. And that you never do happens. that. You think about it in the back of your head, and then it comes out as what might to others seem impulsive. But most of it is brewing. You just right. have to let those ideas brew, and then you have to be willing to, to act on them. So but. that makes you a pretty strong, uh, let's say a, a, a risk taker who... To others might seem impulsive, but to you, it's it's a process that works. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Good. Okay. So we got a little background here. Um, so you're done with college. You're not sure what to do. We meet in a coffee shop. Clearly <laughs> Boulder's the place to go. You head out here and you're here for what? Four years or so training. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned um, being on touring bike, right? And then realizing once you got on a real bike, like, whoa, I might actually have some talent. I, uh, Tim's always had this sort of theory that you need to earn the gear. Like, don't go out and buy the best gear. You like earn the gear. The gear's not what it's about. You're the engine. So you got to tune up the engine. And if the engine finally deserves the gear, get the gear. So you're like the, <laughs> the most extreme example. of. <laughs> yeah. I'm a complete supporter of that. I took the touring bike down to Tribella's in Denver to get fixed up before oh, the, I love the first fake race I did. And they were 
trying to convince me that they could rent me a bike for the weekend of the race that I did. And I said, I don't think I've trained hard enough to rent a bike yet. You know, if I really wanted to get those extra few minutes, I would have trained harder. Oh, my gosh. I need to rent the bike. And then they proceeded to put the bike on a piece of their wood flooring that was popping up. So because I left the store, they fixed it up and I came back and they they put it on a piece of wood flooring that was popping up. They because like, it, was it was so a heavy, heavy bike. <laughs> That's such a great example. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So so during this time you had met Kenneth, right? When you got to Boulder? Yes. I met Kenneth in 2012 and we started dating early 2013. Uh, Got it. So I see you're kind of like in this really fun world of discovering your inner talents and sort of probably falling in love with someone who also has these same interests and talents and starting to pursue that world in a more serious way, right? And then craziness happens. So let's go back to where we kind of paused a minute ago. Um, You know, you... I, I knew about you in just from knowing about someone who had had an accident, but I, I did, we weren't in the same social circles mm-hmm. and I wasn't following triathlon super closely. So I didn't put it together until we were connected by one of our former podcast guests. Um, I think Betsy Hartley yeah. and Tracy Hulick are both in your circle. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what happened that day then. Yeah, absolutely. So... We had a new puppy. She was only a few months old. And I got up and took her to the dog park. And you know how you get as an athlete, you have your routines. So we came home. We had our Saturday pancakes because we were going to go out for a ride. It was Kenneth's off season, but there's always a group leaving from a Monte coffee shop. And Mm -hmm. he had a few friends he wanted to go ride with. I was... A little bit jealous I kind of wanted to go play up in the mountains myself but I also wanted to make sure I was ready on the triathlon bike so I was gonna stay on the flats in Boulder so my goal was to go around 30 to 36 to um to hygiene and back kind of make a loop on Neva and then yep. do that four times mm-hmm. and as boring as it was sometimes you just get in the mode and you, that doesn't matter yeah. and then I was close to home if I wanted to bail out and so he went and went up to where did he go he went up jamestown and went up climbing with his buds so we started out the day together we both left in the group and then i waved them goodbye when it came time to turn at left hand and i did my first loop and 36 is busy these days Mm -hmm. it's extremely busy it's kind of frustrating but it was pleasant that day i remember not being annoyed i actually enjoyed that part of the first loop the most because the hills were more engaging mentally and so it was interesting to me that day that that was an okay place to be like i was happy on that road and i came out on neva and i started the second loop and for the podcasters that don't know it's a two-lane highway so people are going fast but there's a big shoulder it's between five and ten feet most of the way so cyclists, this is the way out of town, and there were hundreds of cyclists that day. It was a beautiful blue sky, arm warmers kind of day, and I got to the top of a hill, and I was actually leapfrogging it with this other cyclist who I was trying to stay on pace. I had goals for this ride, and I wasn't, we just kept leapfrogging because we were on this rolling section, and I mm-hmm. think he'd pass me up on the uphill and I'd pass him on the downhill because I was on my tri bike. So I got in front of him and there's this final descent into lions and there's a turn or a street that comes up to US 36 and they're able to turn onto US 36. And so the car came out past the stop sign, did not stop and stopped instead in the lane of cycling traffic. And unfortunately for me, I was too close and I couldn't stop in time. So what I remember is being in my aero bars and just seeing this bright red car. And red is just such a visceral feeling when you see that. And I popped up to my bullhorns and I braked as hard as I could. I had bruise marks all the way through my palm to the back of my hand. And I skidded about 50 feet and I was... That was it. 
and I don't remember Impact. I thought for the longest time, or I just assumed when I woke up in the hospital that I had hit pavement. It didn't even dawn on me that I had hit the car because my rear wheel had skidded out from underneath me. And that was the last feeling I remembered was my rear wheel skidding. And so I just assumed I kind of peeled off onto the ground. Was the driver pulled out but looking the other way? Did he see you coming and just couldn't react? Or what was going on there? I have not talked to the driver. Okay. He had 17 traffic infractions prior to mine. Wow. He was not a good driver. I don't think... He bothered to look. I don't think that that's an excuse that's tolerable. I think we tolerate a lot on the roads that's just not, shouldn't be tolerated. So he didn't see me for whatever reason. They won't check to see if he was looking at his phone because you have to subpoena phone records and that's really difficult to do and it's time consuming. And so there's very few reasons that they will do that in a crash scenario unless there's a good reason to do that. So I w- This wasn't a good reason. Um, no. I did read an article that said he was not looking at his phone or not intoxicated. I just, when I was sort of researching deeper. That also said that I ran into him and basically implied that I was at fault for my crash, which is something that's really common in the newspaper articles. Uh, that's been a big thing for me is how, if you go back and look at, at least in our neighborhood, the Daily Camera article, right? The newspaper writes these articles and they are quoting a police officer who is sitting in Lakewood 50 miles away. Right. Has no Mm -hmm. idea what's going on, never been to the intersection. And so they do their best on all accounts. I don't think anyone's out to like create the story or misconstrue the story, but I do think a lot of these stories get misconstrued and there's no way to know whether he was on his phone or not. Yep. Really. In other words, he wasn't paying attention. You had no time to stop. And yeah. and if you had swerved a different way, you could have had a totally worse, you know, scenario, run into oncoming traffic or something like that. Like there's no there's no other way to handle it. Yeah. You did the best you could. The guy behind me did have that extra second to react and he did swerve into oncoming traffic and he was lucky that he didn't get hit too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So you don't remember impact? No. Do you want to help recount what happened from what you've heard and read? Yeah, I can do that. Uh, so I I did impact the car. I hit with my left side and I shattered the glass of the driver's side window. And... The, there were three people in the car, the driver and two passengers. And the one passenger I did talk to once on the phone. He was a skateboarder, ex-skateboarder, and he said he was used to seeing accidents happen on the skateboard uh, park. And so he immediately got out, ran around, and put a flannel shirt on my face. And I do think that he was possibly... My life was so close to ending that basically anyone that helped out gets credit for saving my life as far as I'm concerned. So he was the first person to respond. And then the police officer was coming down from Jamestown. A construction worker had just gotten killed. And so he had just come from another crash. And he heard that I had facial trauma. And so your face, you said your left side hit the car window or went through the car window the and car it was window. your face that led the impact my face led the impact my face took the brunt of all my injuries so the glass exploding basically exploded through your face yep yeah they were pulling a lot of glass out of my face okay <laughs> and then your body kind of followed and you were like kind of in the car or not yeah. sure how that- I don't know. I For the longest time, I thought that I was just laid out on the ground after all of this. And then I met another triathlete who happened to have been right behind me that day. And 
two years later, he pointed out to me that when he rode past, I was actually sitting up against the wheel well of the car. Wow. And it was so interesting to hear somebody else tell you, I've never been blacked out drunk or anything. So I've never had any other instances in my life where somebody else has had to tell me what happened to me right. without me knowing. Oh my gosh. But two years later, I found that out. So in some capacity, I went. Th- my head went through the car enough to shatter the window, but then I was laying up against the wheel well, and then the police officer arrived, and I actually just got to talk to him and thank him in person in the last six months. And he told me that uh, that the he was communicating with the ambulance and the EMTs. And they want they came on scene and they wanted to put bandages of some sort on my face and he was still holding the flannel shirt and he tried to I don't know why I think this is funny but he tried to explain to them that they couldn't take the flannel shirt off and they were like no 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 like we've got it and they started to pull the flannel shirt off and my face was coming with it so then they were like oh. We'll leave it there for now. Oh, my God. So, you so know, he was like, you know, you don't understand the situation. You really shouldn't do that. Okay, so I'm, I I could be crying. I've already almost teared up here. But, like, <laughs> the fact I already can see part of how you have survived and thrived because of this ability to have a sense of humor and a different perspective. And granted, it's good that you don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's fucking crazy seriously yeah. insane so they had to leave the shirt on your face or your face would be off your face the only thing i remember post crash before waking up in the from a sedated coma they kept me in a sedated coma for five days and the only thing i remember from my wheel skidding out until waking up was being lifted into the ambulance and hearing her face was peeled off so that's that was my memory waking up oh was my knowing god that. Um, i can't imagine like the psychological impact that would have too what did you wake what, what were you thinking when you woke up then i was so out of it with drugs but it <laughs> but, but i did spend time worrying in the hospital room because i didn't want to see my face for several days and so i made it very clear that I wasn't going to look in any mirrors, not that I was getting up and look, there weren't mirrors nearby for me to necessarily look in. It would have had to have been intentional, but I didn't want to see my face. And so you hear bits and pieces of what happened and you don't fully understand what surgery you went through. And then mm-hmm. in, in the back of my head, I still have this, her face is peeled off. And I was actually pretty happy with when I, saw my face that my cheekbones were level that was a big thing for me I was really excited that my cheekbones were even I just pictured this monster kind of I you know back at me that's that is that's like a relief it's Mm -hmm. like a bad relief but a good relief of a bad thing Mm -hmm. right I mean it's it's sort of ironic and when you walked in today I said let me see this close up (laughs) wow they did a really good job with your you know facial like the reconstruction the scarring is there like it's obvious you can see it but it's not like a predominant thing I'm looking at it right now (laughs) there it is no and I could have more surgery done to it but I chose at a certain point not to does does it still hurt no, it, nothing hurts. My teeth occasionally hurt because my teeth are cracked. But beyond that, I don't have any lingering pain from it. Is um, So we were talking about how people kind of might pretend they don't notice. Yeah. So tell me more about that conversation. <laughs> well, I was telling you earlier that uh, I feel especially women will tell me that they didn't notice it. Which, depending on how you see me, if you see the right side of my face, you wouldn't notice it. Even directly face on, it's not super noticeable. But it's always interesting because then I'll be around little kids and little kids don't have the filter to know not to ask. And so I'd say kids under the age of like seven or eight just lack that filter and will often go what happened to your face or uh just yesterday it was did you have stitches and I said yes 
and I don't have a problem answering it. And sometimes if the parents are there and they kind of give this horrific look in the background and you have to be like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I don't have a problem talking about it because their filter automatically goes up for you. As soon as their kid asks, they go, oh, no. Right, right. So, Um, I mean, I have that filter for my kid because she's seven and she would do the same thing. And it's just curiosity. Oh, totally. And so how does, like, have you felt since the accident that you know you have a visual sort of it's not um it's not disability but like a little bit of a disfiguration right Mm -hmm. so is that has that changed the way you walk the world not a lot a lot of times I don't notice it it's I think it's also interesting when I do notice it one time I was in the library, and I, this is a North Polar library, so it's a small room. And I had the sniffles, and I was trying to get books because I knew I was going to be homesick, and I just wanted to have as many books as I wanted to read there at home. So I walked to the library, and I'm there, and I'm trying to not sniffle in the library because you don't want to be that sick person. So I was very conscious of myself and not sniffling. And then there was a few firefighters in there and they were checking out books or whatever. And I walked out and I I had felt one of them looking at me and it's, who knows, but it dawned on me as I was walking the block home that he probably didn't care that I was sniffling. If I were him, he might've been looking at my scar because he goes and he shows up at the scene every time that somebody is injured. So there was an ambulance and there was a fire truck at the scene where I was at. And so when I thought about that way, I was like, if I were in their profession and I saw someone with a scar, I would wonder what that was from too. In fact, I knew somebody in a previous job and he went on to be an EMT and I found out also years later, he was the second ambulance called to my scene and I was already gone at that point but it was a firefighter who told him not who I was he didn't know it was me at the time but a firefighter said he didn't know if I was going to make it to the hospital alive that day and that's what he had told my previous co-worker so wow, uh, wow. I, you know I didn't even think about the fire truck being there until then but the they, they show up at those scenes too. So it's like, you know, in a weird way, it's cr- you've created some connections with people that are very deep without oh, even knowing them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, so you wake up in the hospital and were you kind of like, who am I going to be now? Like, how do I get through? Or were you just sort of like dealing with the day to day? Like, I, I don't know, but I'm assuming like you couldn't chew, you couldn't talk. Did you have a brain injury? Like how did, how did the days after the accident, you know, roll, roll on? So my parents wanted to keep me pretty protected. They didn't want to talk about a lot of stuff. Kenneth was willing to talk about things with me. Were you married already? So I'll backtrack a little. (laughs) (laughs) All right, love story. So I woke up on (laughs) Wednesday. I was too sedated. On Sunday, I went into, so this the crash happened on Saturday. Sunday, my mom was able to get into town. My dad was able to follow shortly after on Monday. But Sunday, my mom got into the hospital and they had the hardest time keeping me sedated because as an athlete, my blood pressure and my heart rate were super low. And they were running a really fine line of giving me too much sedation meds and killing me or not giving me enough and I was waking up. And so my mom got to the hospital and my eye was open. And uh, because one eye could one open. One eye was okay. open and 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 a tear rolled down which was like the saddest thing i my mom told me that and um that was heartbreaking for me but my mom walked out of the icu room and some of the nurses asked her if i was on drugs because apparently most of the people that are hard to sedate are the ones that are on on using heavy drugs my mom was like pretty sure she's not (laughs) she's an athlete (laughs) she's really careful about what she puts in her body but uh oh my god so then they finally they were able to sedate me well for the the next several days and then wednesday i think they had trouble actually getting me out of sedation i was too agitated so it took 
twice they had to do it twice they resedated me at one point and then brought me back out so my better memories are from thursday on so thursday once i was more coherent kenneth was talking to me and i was not able to talk back so i wrote on a pad of paper and he asked if uh, i would marry him and I, I just wrote, are you joking? Because <laughs> he knew I wanted to get married. And it was just so out of the blue. And he was so calm about it. And I said, yes. And then he told me that he had proposed to me every night in the hospital since I had been oh my God. in the hospital. So <laughs> that first Saturday night oh, when I was just coming out of surgery and nobody knew what my injuries were nobody knew if i had brain trauma nobody knew if i had neurological damage kenneth said he he knew but i think part of it was that he was just in denial about certain things and there was talk about me going down to like craig hospital and doing like six weeks of outpatient i mean people did not the prognosis initially was not great and obviously he didn't know what kind of scarring i'd be left with and he was willing to propose to me anyway so, can never get mad at him. I mean, I do sometimes, but I always, always know I'm in the wrong for getting mad at him because he's the coolest guy ever. That is the most unique proposal I've ever heard, and it's the best <laughs> it's because he really wanted to stand by me when things weren't going well. So it was cool. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. Okay, so that's <laughs> so, what you need during a time like that. You do, and it was awesome. And so part of me was very worried and very concerned, but there was a small part of me that was extremely excited in the hospital. I made sure that somebody went home and got a ring from the closet, and I made sure to tell all of the nurses that I was engaged, and I was just so happy in that sense. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it was not that I was... Mm a happy person all the time there and it's not that things were going so great but there was this one aspect of life yeah. that no matter how bad things were I was just over the moon that I was engaged so wow yeah. okay so positive things so this is like what you need to move forward is some bits and pieces of positivity that can create momentum yeah and so you're kind of defying some odds here by uh having maybe uh, surpassing their their thoughts on the prognosis, right? Mm -hmm. um, was your recovery, like, how did that go? Were you in the hospital for a long time? I was in the hospital, excuse me, for 11 days. And the support that I got in intensive care was amazing. I actually went straight from intensive care to home, which they normally don't let you do. But I was very determined to get out. I... It was great. I was motivated to do. I had a checklist every day of things I wanted to do. Somebody was going to paint my nails. I was going to get dressed. There were little things every day. And life turned around so much. So in those first few days, it was very quick. One day, my dad came in. Both my parents came in. And the lights were on. And the lights had been off in the room the previous days. And all of a sudden, the lights were on. And I... And I was asking for clothes to get dressed. And they were, you know, that was big for my dad. That was a huge turnaround to see. The hard part was coming home because when you're home, life goes back to normal in the sense that you see what you're missing out on. Life doesn't go back to normal for the person who's leaving the hospital, but you're expected to re-enter the world and see what else is going on around you. And that's very difficult. Oh, yeah, for sure. So. Um, I mean, that's just part of an adjustment, right? Each mm -hmm. stage is an adjustment. So were you having surgeries through this time? The only surgeries I had were that Saturday. And then when they kept me sedated for those several days, it was so they could actually go in. The first day, all they did was so sewed up my skin and picked out glass. And it was multi-hour surgery. And they didn't actually fix my bones until four days later they okay. went in through like mm -hmm. near my eye and they actually fixed the bones even though my skin was already stitched up and then after that I had dental surgery and if you could call it that but I had to get some teeth removed and then I went in February so 
so I don't know, five months after or something, and <laughs> was going to get this tr treatment, this laser surgery to minimize the scar. And I took the pain meds and I read the sheet. It was an inpatient or an outpatient yeah. deal in the office. And I read the sheet of what the recovery would take. And they're like, and it'll feel like sunburn and make sure you put Crisco on your face and do all this stuff. And I called up my brother-in-law who was driving me and I said, pick me up. <laughs> I said, I'm not doing it. Wow. So, uh, so I took the pain meds and I paid for the pain meds and I paid my copay and, <laughs> and I left. Took off. And I went back and I had surgery the following year, the following December in 2015. And my dad came out for it. It was also outpatient. And they minimized some of the scarring by just doing some more stitches and such. And that's the last time I've done that. It was too wow. difficult. That's why my face looks the way it does because I could go back to get it fixed, but. I don't mind that people see. I think it's actually good. Your face and, is uh, amazing. Yeah. Beautiful. I don't want to go back. It that's it opens too much emotional trauma to bother. Right. Because <laughs> now it's just all aesthetic. Yeah. Because you're functioning, you're eating, you're speaking. Exactly. You know, if it was affecting those functions, maybe that's a reason. Yep. Um, so did you suffer any brain like injury? No, I had a major concussion, but there was no uh, internal bleeding. Great. So that was good. Yeah. That I was lucky. Wear a helmet. Absolutely <laughs> lucky. Yes, that helmet company. We probably need to give them props. <laughs> Do they sponsor you now? Laser Helmet sent me a helmet after that crash because yeah. they saw that I was wearing their, uh, their helmet at the time. We yeah. need lifetime helmets from them, please. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, I'm a lifetime customer, that's for sure. So speaking of brains, I wanted to go back because a recovery from something like this is difficult for anybody. But you have uh, posted on your website that earlier in your life you uh, suffered for a while with undiagnosed and finally were diagnosed with bipolar. Yeah. And we talked about that you're open to talking about it. And I wondered if like, I don't know how did, did bipolar rear its head during this recovery time and play tricks with you? It did. Yeah, it did. And from very early on in the hospital of the things I was scared about, that was actually what I was scared about. And I would say that it was the same for Kenneth. We were both actually more scared of the idea that it could cause a major depression just from the trauma of it and the stress of mm -hmm. recovery because bipolar gets worse with stress and you take away sleep, you take away coping mechanisms like working out and it's just bound to get worse. So yes, it got really bad. It was probably the worst in the spring, I would say January through May, when the legal stuff was going on for the criminal case. That was very stressful for me. Criminal case. It wasn't, it was a traffic case. He got sentenced with careless driving, causing serious bodily injury. But there were a lot of points where I was not treated like a victim and he had the upper hand in how things played out in the court system and it felt very unjust and that stress brought on a lot okay so two topics going on yeah here. i feel um, like we're splitting a little yeah. bit well let's just i want to just maybe for anyone listening who suffers from bipolar disorder or depression or how did how did bipolar affect you personally affects everyone a little bit differently. Like when you were younger and you didn't know what was going on, how did how did it manifest? So it probably started around 10th grade. I was a swimmer and I lost my motivation in swimming. I would come home some days at four in the afternoon from high school and just go sleep. And I would binge eat on carbs and I love carbs. I love carbs too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
a few things that I learned when I finally did get diagnosed, which wasn't until I was 26, is one, there's a type of depression called atypical depression that often rolls with bipolar two, which I have bipolar two, not bipolar one. And atypical depression doesn't always feel like the classical, oh, I'm, I'm depressed. I just don't feel good. It's there's lethargy is a really big part of it. So that idea that I would be on the ground feeling like I couldn't get up, even though physically I could have gone and run a 5k, but I mean, I would be on the ground, on the ground. And my mom and I actually talked about it today. And she was like, I didn't realize until, until we had to go through all this, just how immobile you became when this happened. And now I'm doing really well. I actually just got off my meds a few weeks ago and I'm taking a supplement and it's going amazing. And I have periods now where I might not feel amazing and I'll be like, "Mm, life's like just not going right today, but I can roll through the day anyway. It doesn't just immobilize me. Yes. You're managing it. You're learning. how. It's a totally different. You can be depressed. You can be like, I don't feel good today and still manage your day. But with, bipolar I couldn't do that and so yeah that was a really big thing and then also not let's see just my mood swings and my reactivity to things and my I would blame a lot of other people for things that were going wrong because I didn't understand it so up until I was diagnosed, it really impacted my trajectory in life because it just popped its head in everything. It just yeah. so I had been in the Coast Guard and I went underway. I was I had graduated from the Coast Guard Academy, and when you go underway, you mess with your sleep schedules, you mess with what you're eating. And that's a trigger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you mess with your exercise. And all of a sudden, three of my biggest triggers were gone. And I was crazy. My, um, the person who I worked under, he was looking out for me. And he actually asked if I was pregnant because he thought, he was, he said my ex-wife was like <laughs> you're like acting like my ex-wife yeah. did when she was pregnant you know it was just that reactivity <laughs> to things and not yeah, being able yeah. not feeling like you have control and one day life's great and the next day it's not and you can't explain it so yeah i that was the being immobile was a huge thing for me and just yep but you lack of control over emotions and you were able to get through it um, with Kenneth's support, your family, meds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had some not so great days. And after the crash, there were days where there were a lot of days that were not so good at our house. And I would be fine in public. And it was very difficult for Kenneth because I would come home and I would crash and yeah. he was the one who was left picking up the pieces and he didn't understand why everyone else got to see the positive me and he had to deal with the the me that wasn't doing so hot <laughs> i mean this this makes us forces us to analyze our i don't know our aptitudes for compassion for ourselves and others you know i mm-hmm. mean we need support in our lives. We can't get through this stuff alone. And I encourage anyone listening to follow you on social media because you actually post a lot about that exact topic. I actually want to read this one post that you had because it's a perfect time to do it. I think you put it up a couple months ago. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to go four years ago. Kenneth was riding his bike when he found out I'd been hit. My sister, Lydia Pert, do you pronounce Purr. Purr? Purr, Did yeah. I meet her too? I think you did. (laughs) Lydia Permalin had finished a trail run with her fiance, Jeff. My dad had just finished walking the dog and saw my mom on the phone. My parents were supposed to go for dinner with friends. My brother-in-law, Galen, and Jocelyn got the call and packed up clothes to take Kenneth to the hospital. Today, I'm writing a section in my book about how traumatic events don't just happen to one injured party. They happen to an entire community. I'm so grateful for everyone who stepped in to help since then. 
Just take an extra moment today to appreciate the mundane, ordinary events of your life. Because when an accident like that happens, it happened to you, but everyone remembers the moment they got the phone call. Oh, absolutely. And and in your case, you're so lucky to be loved and supported by many that they just jumped into action. Yeah, and the people it affected that I talked about who were at the scene yes it's their job the police officer officer chris who arrived at the scene or the emts or the district attorney but these people all get affected too and i've been lucky enough to reach out to a lot of them and talk to them but there's people that won't ever forget what what the scene looks like and that that's trauma there's actually a type of trauma called secondary trauma. And so I learned about this in, when I went to therapy for PTSD years after the crash. And if you're an injured person, if you get injured, your body starts releasing all the hormones. You're probably going to get pain meds if you're <laughs> taken away in an ambulance. And there's all this, like my, I don't remember anything. My brain just blocked out all my memories. That's a protective mechanism. But you get secondary trauma. These are the people that hear, get the phone calls, that hear what happened, that see the scene. Those people don't get the same chemical releases. Nobody's giving them pain medication and they don't get to block out any of those memories. So what my sister went through when she got the phone call and heard that I wasn't okay or Kenneth, who actually rode up to the scene. He was supposed to meet me that day on that ride. I failed to mention that. So he was riding the opposite direction trying to meet me. And the first thing he saw was the water bottle he filled for me that morning on the ground. He knows I don't leave water bottles behind because I chug all of my water during workouts. And he looked up the road and he saw the fire truck and the ambulance and the whole scene. And nobody could tell him whether I was alive or not. So he had to ride his bike seven miles. Because you were gone from the scene when he arrived. And he was bonking. He didn't have any fuel. He was ready to be home prior to even knowing what had happened. He was low on energy. And so he rode seven miles to the hospital not knowing if I was alive or not. And that, he doesn't get anything to protect him from that. That's with him for life. So I think we do a good job when we see somebody's injured to support them but I think there's less of an awareness about how to help people when you can't see it I even struggle with that I'm struggling with that with that um with different people that I know now there I just don't know how to help them and there's not really one answer but it's just tricky it is tricky well and you're someone who cares and you've been through your own life events to for you to be able to see when people are struggling yes Mm -hmm. yeah let's talk a little bit about how you overcome fear I mean how do you get back on the bike and then become a pro triathlete I mean someone who now makes a living through the very thing that almost killed you I figured it out probably years after the crash how to say what drove me to get back on the bike and it's a lot got taken away from me that day and I was given a lot I learned a lot in this process and so it's not all that things were taken away from me but when you talk about my face or my smile my teeth are different my smile's different so every once in a while I look at photos I'm like oh man like this things things got taken away from me and I didn't want the bike to be one of those things and I that made me mad that that was something that people were saying could even be an option. It was like, it doesn't have to be an option. I don't want one more thing taken away from me. And so that was why I got back on the bike. And (laughs) we have a lot of bikes in our house. I don't know about you, but we have mountain bikes and road bikes and triathlon bikes. And I even have a dirt jump bike. And so when I got back on the bike, I didn't have to get back on the dry bike. So I got back on the road bike and that was a different type of riding and that made it okay. Not the touring bike? 
I saw that to a friend. <laughs> but I would have otherwise. Uh, but yeah, I think that helped get back on the bike was doing it different. It didn't have to be the exact same thing. And I think that's a really good point because we we create, I guess, I don't even know if we create it in our minds. Like it, there'd be, you'd be kind of crazy or really out there to just jump right back into the thing that created this trauma in your life that you had to mm-hmm. recover from and deal with and pain and suffering. So I like this approach. You yeah. said, I don't want this accident to take something from me that I love. Yep. So I'm going to just do it different, but yep. get back on. Mm-hmm. But then eventually you got back on your tri bike. I got back on a tri bike, <laughs> a different one, because the other one was still in police evidence. But I got a different tri bike. I have had a few since, and I still don't love the tri bike as much as the road bike. I probably never will. But it was just getting back out there. And for me, it's a time to be social. It's how I bonded with Kenneth. And there's, I, we didn't own a car prior to me getting hit for almost a year. And I learned to love bike commuting. And so talk so to me about like why you didn't own a car. Is it because you were afraid to drive and that someone could get injured or? Uh, no, I, ever since my, our bike tour, I hadn't wanted to, I had wanted to get rid of my car. I just like being on a bike better. And actually biking, I think is really good for bipolar. It forces you to have to get some exercise by commuting, I should say. So if you commute to work and all of a sudden you start having a really bad day and and bad day could be just anyone's bad day. Or for me, it was a bipolar bad day where my energy was really low and I just felt like I was falling apart at the seams. I still had to get myself back home. (laughs) And you get back on and you pedal and there's a rhythm to pedaling and you start to get in the rhythm and the rhythm kind of helps you. It's like swim strokes. And then you're moving your body and you've got the exercise and you start to get the endorphins and you get home and maybe you don't feel better, but you still got home or maybe you do. And, and I think for me, and it slows down the world. And I think actually my take on mental illness is that we create a lot of our own mental illnesses just in the world we've created for ourselves of constant go, go, go. And slowing things down can really help a lot. And so you get on a bike and you slow everything down to a manageable level. And so that, that was a big thing for me. But Kenneth didn't own a car when we, he had never owned a car. I had owned a car. And so when we were dating at one point, my car broke down and it was broke down on 66. I actually had to get towed back to the house and it was like, all right, we're not fixing it. That's it. And, and that was one of the things I really had admired about him was that he didn't need a car. And so up until the crash, we just didn't have a car. I love that. Um, also triathletes don't make a whole lot of money. (laughs) So let's talk about, you became a pro triathlete. Yes. Did you think before the accident, like you were on track to be, to do that? Kenneth's been a high level athlete. He was a high level cyclist for years. And so Mm -hmm. I started dating him and he got me into cycling and I wanted to be like the best cyclist there was. And I got really gung ho about that. And then after, after the crash, I kind of didn't want to be back bike racing. Cause I don't mind being in a Peloton with other people, but racing, there's always crashes and I just didn't want to be around it. So I just had to go back to triathlon and yeah, I think Kenneth's drive for being a high level athlete pushed me to want to be there to see what I could do. Uh, I don't know. It just happened organically. Yeah. It just kind of became part of how we ran the house and what we did. And so, so today you're both pro triathletes. You're like on the circuit. You're mostly doing 70.3s. Is that right? Yes. I've been injured for a year. So I'm kind of in this 
fuzzy zone of, mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing this year. I wouldn't say I'm on the circuit this year because I have a hip injury and I battled mm-hmm. it all last year trying to come back. And I came back for a race at the end of the year and my hip hurt and afterwards my hip hurt and it's not worth it to me mm. to put, well, I don't even think I can at this point put myself through a heavy load of training. I don't think my hip would hold up to even get to a race right now. So we'll see what the future has as far as that goes. But but yes, Kenneth's had a great year on uh, last year. And regardless, it's we love the sports. We Absolutely. The- because you're both coaches as well, right? Mm-hmm. So you have Be the Beast coaching. Is that yep. right? Okay. Yep. So if people want to contact you and they're like, I really love her philosophy and I want to get involved, uh, they just go to your website? Yeah, that's a great place to start. Awesome. Well, I can say that you are welcome to join me on my hikes. I hike up and run down and (laughs) I do mountain biking and I love commuting on my bike, but I do not want to get on a road bike again myself. (laughs) You're done with road bikes. You know, life changes, right? Yeah. I hear you. Um, You know, before we go, I do want to hit on uh, a little bit of driving awareness and and road, I don't know, road awareness. So are you, would you consider yourself like an activist in this area now? Somebody who has a passionate, you know, path towards uh, helping keep the roads safer? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, my... The lawyer for my civil case is actually president of Bicycle Colorado now. And so we keep in contact about stuff going on within the state for Bicycle Colorado. And we both want in the future for somebody who causes a crash such as mine. And I will correct you. This is not at all your fault. People call them accidents, but they're not. They're crashes. Did I call it an accident? Earlier on. And it's totally <laughs> fine because most people do. But wow. it's just one of those things yeah. that it's a wording change. Yeah, no, and it's, it's not a car change. that hit me. It's a driver who hit me. Got and it. there's these little ways that we talk about crashes, that especially involving cyclists that mm-hmm. change accountability. Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, but both of our goal is to have at one point in the future – somebody who causes a crash such as mine to have their license taken away. That would be really important to, to me. And so, so you're going to keep working towards that effort. Yeah. Awesome. And just daily awareness. People who hear about my crash suddenly start driving a little bit better. So that's a good thing. Absolutely. Throw your phone in the console or give it to your kid in the back seat, which is what I end up doing. <laughs> it's not worth it. It's, it's not, not worth it for the person outside of the car, but and I've never spoken to the driver, but I guarantee it was not worth it for him. Yep, I agree. Well, we've been going for a while today. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to hit on? Any message you want to get out there, advice for people? You know, we didn't talk a ton about bipolar, which is totally fine with me. But if any of your listeners do struggle with it, there was a while where I looked for other athletes that had bipolar too and tried to kind of find somebody to be a role model or offer some guidance. And if anyone that listens to this podcast wants to talk more about it with somebody who has gone through the ropes with bipolar too i'm i'm available i'd happy to be a resource to any of your listeners oh that is so cool we'll definitely put a link to contact you in the show notes okay yeah awesome all right well we'll go into our final nugget here (laughs) so if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way what would it be if you're unhappy with something that's going on in your community or in your house or your life, I would say it's okay to complain or complain with purpose, but think about how you can make the changes. Step outside the box and do something different. And um, I've tried a lot of things in life and, and I don't stick with all of them, but 
it comes from a place of not being happy with the way things are working and trying something different. And I think that's really a good place to start is making sure you take action if you're unhappy with something. You know, I love that about you. You did it 10 years ago or <laughs> whenever after we met at that coffee shop. Yeah. And I can't wait to see what you do next out there in this big, awesome world. Yeah, me too. I'm back, everyone. Um, well, let's just start with this. Adelaide is clearly a survivor of something horrific. What I took away from her story is I was trying to put myself like in her shoes and imagine the last words you hear before you wake up in a daze, days after a medically induced coma where her face is peeled off. I mean, that's what she heard in the ambulance, the last thing she heard. You know, how do you even like open your eyes and like come to remembering your reality? So then I think about how fortunate she is that she has such an incredible support network and that's a testament to who she is. And then of course, hearing the words, will you marry me as like the first uh, four words upon waking up or close to waking up. I mean, that might've just been the magic she needed to, you know, obliterate that fear that those previous words created. So remember that when you're supporting someone, you need you don't necessarily need to ask them to marry you, but bring them something positive right out of the gates because you know, at the end, difficult things happen to us every day, whether we control them or not. You know, they happen sometimes to us, we do them. Um, but it's up to us to to figure out how to move forward. And Adelaide's final nugget is very Apropos, if you're not happy, make the changes. Step outside the box, do something different. Because happiness is important. And when we realize and embrace that we control our own happiness, that is power. All right, then, to connect with Adelaide, visit her website, be the beastcoaching.com, be the beastcoaching.com. Um, there's a contact form, and as she mentioned, if you have bipolar disorder, she wants to be a resource for you. This is something she had trouble finding, and she knows how important it is to support each other. All right, everyone, on that note, it's time for us to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>